0: Greetings, everyone. Welcome to Seminary Unboxed. This is Dr. Matt Ayers, your host and president of Wesley Biblical Seminary. Um, Today's episode is a shared episode between my uh, podcast here on Seminary Unboxed, as well as uh, our dean here at WBS, Dr. Andy Miller, his More to the Story podcast. We sat down, myself, Andy, and Dr. Murray Vassar and Dr. Steve Blakemore here at Wesley Biblical uh, to discuss the doctrine of inerrancy, what it is and what it isn't, and uh, why here at Wesley Biblical we continue to say that we are inerrantists and why we think that's important. So um, what you're going to hear is that discussion. Enjoy.
1: Hey, friends. I'm so glad that you have come along here. We are at Wesley Biblical Seminary, where we are developing trusted leaders to serve faithful churches all around the world. We're excited this fall that we are adding a new emphasis in the Global Methodist Church. The Global Methodist Church is a new partner of ours as that denomination is coming into existence. We have just actually, Matt, it's crazy. We've just... 241 students at my last count have come into our course of study for the Global Methodist Church, meaning this fall we'll have over 500 students at Wesley Biblical Seminary. And if you want to find out more about Wesley Biblical Seminary, go to wbs.edu. One of the things a seminary does beyond instruction is that we work as a team of scholars to serve the church. And the last couple of days, this little group has been having side conversations about a very important issue. And we thought we might just take that com- those conversations we we're having and bring them to you in this format. So, that's what we're gonna do today. I'm just gonna invite everybody to introduce themselves around the square, half circle, whatever we have here.
2: Hi, my name's Steve Blakemore. I'm the oldest guy in the circle. (laughs) I'm the professor of Christian thought here at Wesley Biblical Seminary.
0: I'm Matt Ayers, President, Wesley Biblical Seminary, and Assistant Professor of Old Testament.
3: Hi, I'm I'm Murray Vassar, and I just joined the faculty here at Wesley Biblical Seminary. I'm a New Testament professor.
1: And I'm Andy Miller, and I am the Vice President for Academic Affairs and Assistant Professor of Historical Theology. So we have a nice team here representing various disciplines to talk about the subject of biblical inerrancy. Now, one of the reasons that this comes up is that Wesley Biblical Seminary throughout our history, we have described ourselves as inerrantists. And we've even gone as far as to say that we are enthusiastic inerrantists. Now, within the Wesleyan tradition, This isn't always a popular view, and I thought it would be helpful for us to talk about why we think, not just as an institution that's helpful, but why in our Christian experience and the way that we read scripture and the way we approach scripture God's revelation in space and time, why this is an important doctrine that we think Wesleyans, particularly at this stage in the Wesleyan movement where there's a new branch coming off of the Global Methodist Church, why this is significant. So that's what we're going to try and cover today. So Matt, why don't we start off with you, what, when we talk about inerrancy, what is the kind of the big picture? What are we talking about when we describe the doctrine of inerrancy?
0: Yeah, so what I have in mind, and I think I speak for not just myself, but for many others who also use the term, um, is we have the Chicago Statement right, right. on inerrancy in mind. And I understand uh, it's some, yeah, and, some, and it's, it's got its limitations, but some even within the Wesleyan tradition would object to a Wesleyan, uh, you know, being, an endorser of the Chicago Statement. Uh, But having read it, having studied it, I like it. Even though it's not, it wasn't drafted particularly by Wesleyans, I still think it's good. I think it's accurate. I think it's helpful. Um, So for more of an academic context, the Chicago Statement is what I have in mind. Now, for those who may not be familiar with the Chicago Statement, and that would be probably your average layperson, but as well as a lot of Wesleyans. I was talking to a someone who's been in the Methodist tradition their entire life, like for many decades, and they had never heard of the Chicago Statement. Right. And so I have a definition that I use. Uh, I use this definition in my book on the Holy Spirit. And when I speak out in various venues on bibliology, doctrine of scripture, I talk about inerrancy as the scripture not affirming that which is not conformed to that which is true or real. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that's kind of a, a technical definition. And um, there needs to be some qualifications. Now, this is where we get into some tricky territory, right? So some people would argue that the, my version, or at least the Chicago Statement and and the spirit of the Chicago Statement, you you start down this path of all the qualifications, and then the position dies the death of a thousand qualifications, right? right? right. And so I want to have Steve address that, but nonetheless, let me give an example of a qualification, you know, that the Bible doesn't affirm that which isn't That which does not conform to that which is true or real, Um, let's say the Bible says that the sun rises. Mm -hmm. Well, that's not true. That does not conform. That does not affirm that which conforms to which is real, right? So um, the fact is the sun doesn't rise. The Earth goes around the sun. And so, so the qualification then is in everyday language and speech. In other words, the Bible is not a scientific textbook. And then we have to go on and provide some other qualifications as well. And so, uh, but in general, that's what I'm referring to. Chicago's statement in, in extension, uh, but also, uh, generally speaking, the Bible's not affirmed that which isn't true or real. Now, I know that a lot of people um, would say, well, with things pertaining to faith and salvation, sure, and, and, yeah. and I agree with that, that the Bible is sufficient, the sufficiency of Scripture. Yeah. We have everything we need in Scripture uh, for salvation. I agree. But I think that it goes beyond just for things related to salvation because I believe that the, from an Old Testament perspective, right. um, that the Old Testament provides a very unique view and understanding of our faith as taking place in real time and in real space right. and our theology and our worldview of history and events as they occur in time and space and the importance of true history and true facts, um, I think that we have to have a robust theology of that with regard to the transcendence of God and the uncreated nature of God. And the moment that we start to chalk things up to mythology and how are we using that word mythology and mytho-history, it makes me a little bit uncomfortable right. uh, because of the distinct worldview that the Old Testament is, and I would say the Old Testament is presenting to us, but as God has revealed himself right, right. in the Old Testament. Now, one more comment yeah. and then I'll freed up. I understand that the Bible is not a scientific document, and history as we understand history in the Western world as a product of the Enlightenment and all those things, and that it is a theological document, right. and the Bible's not trying to give us a fact for fact account of, of just cause and effect of how we went from point A to point B, but rather is a witness to God and how he's revealed himself and acted in time and space and history, and there is a tension between understanding the genre of a theological, genre is a contemporary term, a theological document, let's say the book of Joshua and the conquest and colonization of Canaan, it's a, it's a, it's a theology lesson, right. but it's not totally separate not from theology. history, right, it's not yeah. just theology. And the moment that we go, whether or not those things actually happened doesn't matter, yeah. that yeah. makes me really uncomfortable. For lots and lots of reasons, because I think of the unique way that God has revealed himself to be as transcendent and the importance of real time and space, God's revelation in history. And last comment, I do not believe that the Bible is simply a witness to divine revelation. I believe the Bible is divine revelation, that it is the word of God and God speaks through it. I don't believe in dictatorship of scripture. We get to some of that. I think Murray's got some ideas there. But I, I, I very much reject this idea that the scripture is just a witness to, a a community people's witness to God's act in history. I think it is the word of God, as God intended it, working with authors, passing it down, inspiring the writing of the word as he intended it, without error, uh, 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 that he reveals himself in a way in which it doesn't err, but also the transmission of the text as well. All right. This is great. Enough. Oh, Matt, that was perfect. Enough.
1: What a great start. And I just want to set one other contextual piece as we're getting started. A lot of times the charges that are levied, levied, leveled against uh, inerrantists are like, oh, you're trying to treat scripture just in an epistemological fashion, fashion or in- informative fashion, as opposed to a soteriological function. This transformational. Would been, right. Or transformational, so right? So it's transformational as opposed to informational. Well, they're kind of like, why can't it be both? Like, and so that's often- It better be both. If we're, if not, we're in trouble as it comes to other issues. Truth is what sanctifies.
0: Sorry, I get really passionate about this.
3: (laughs) Okay, so uh, yeah, go ahead Murray. Yeah. So as far as um, defining inerrancy and how we explain it, um, I also like the Chicago Statement. I think it's a great articulation of the doctrine as just a simple shorthand way to explain to someone what inerrancy means. I I like to summarize it this way, inerrancy is simply this. Uh, it's the affirmation that everything the Bible teaches is true. Uh, everything the Bible teaches is true. So yeah. that, that um, <laughs> well, it, 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 you know, that's everything. So that means even though we understand the Bible is not a science textbook, we understand the Bible is not you know a primarily a, a textbook of history. But nevertheless, the Bible does teach some things that are h- historical, like Jesus rose from the dead. Right. Uh, the Bible t- it teaches some things which are at least tangentially related to to science. Uh, for example, things involving creation, and of course, that's a big discussion, but also things involving the human person, mind-body dualism, I think is pretty clearly taught in Scripture. Amen. Um, so if, uh, if, you know, the, again, it's just everything the Bible teaches is true. If that's something about theology, it's true. If it's something about science, it's true. Whatever the Bible teaches. And of course, that definition also reminds us that uh, we, we have to interpret, right? Because yeah, sure. if you say everything the Bible teaches, that automatically... Raises the important question: Well, what is the Bible teaching? Are we all coming up right?
0: our right hand and poking out <laughs> our <about laughs>
3: Exactly. Eye? Yeah. Yes. So, important in the example, yeah. in the example you gave about the sun rising, or when Jesus said that the the moon gives its light, or uh, you know the the mustard seed is the smallest the seed. seed. Yeah. You know, we have to ask what what is this passage teaching? Um, is it is it actually teaching um, you know that uh, that uh, the that the Earth orbits the sun, or is um, this just uh,
0: the, 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 the way of speaking though. teaching us that God's love is consistent as the sun rising in the east something like this yeah. yeah yeah yeah
1: yeah that's really helpful to set the stage here and I think like as we're pushing through this getting to these definitions are helpful I think your definition and your definition Matt is like more academic definition and a clear definition not that yours isn't academic but the idea oh is it's great this I love is it. we we in part use this because that's what people think it means like the Bible God speaks truthfully And that everything that the Bible communicates. And that doesn't mean that our interpretations are infallible. Okay, Steve, here's why I want to come to you Um, making sure that, like, there's one of the charges that, that come often is that, well, if you have to explain it so much, it, but Matt said, death by a thousand cuts. And this is, Roger Olson makes this claim. Um, that we love. Yeah, I like yeah big, hey, appreciate having my, my podcast. If we say any names, yeah. if we yeah. say any names, generally there are people who are friends. But I mean, that's one of the complaints. Like, well, if you have to explain it so much, it's not worth it. What do you think, Steve?
2: Well, I think a, the best way to think about that is to realize why did the why did the uh, fundamentalist statement in the early 20th century be, uh, get formulated? Mm-hmm. And why did the Princetonian theologians jump on board with the, like the Niagara Bible right. conference people formulating a certain set of essential fundamentals? Why did that happen? Well, it doesn't happen in a vacuum. They were responding to German idealist higher criticism mm-hmm. out, of the, out of the 19th century mm-hmm. in which the Bible was seen as an evolutionary product mm-hmm. of people playing around with ideas, formulating them, coming to better understandings, mm-hmm. coming mm-hmm. to clari- yeah, yeah. greater clarity, etc., etc., and the Scriptures getting somehow cobbled together from various sources, various um, forms, various... Um, theological perspectives, if you will. Now, out of that, this is coming out of German idealism, which, by the way, has been demonstrated that all of the German idealist biblical scholars and philosophers and theologians were deeply and incredibly anti-Semitic. They could not entertain the idea that a group of primitive Semites Primitive Jewish people could have seminal insights about the nature of God. And that they, they, they didn't even think that there was a written language for Hebrew to be written, uh, of Hebrew, for the scriptures to be written earlier than, say, the fifth or sixth century BC. And archaeological research since then has proven that there was an extensive language yeah. usage, written language usage by ancient Jews. Um, before the time of David, and, you know, what is that, 900, 1,000? So, my point is this. All of a sudden, this approach to the Bible, which was a part of the evolutionary spirit of the times, everything that ever happened in all of human history was just a process of some sort of evolutionary scheme, which meant then that the Bible is filled with falsehoods The Bible is filled with inaccuracies and the Bible is not itself a message from God in any way, shape, or form. It is a message about God written by human beings in their quest for God.
0: Right. Right?
2: Now, when we understand that, you begin to realize why the fundamentalists said, whoa, there's something wrong with this picture. This 19th century or we can say from about 1750 until the, till the, late, uh, till the late 1800s, this Enlightenment 19th century picture of the nature of the Bible does not comport at all with the way that the fathers of the church viewed the Scripture, that the way that the medieval theologians of the Catholic Church and especially medieval theologians of the Orthodox Church much less the reformers themselves looked at the Bible. And so the fundamentalists said, no, we're going to have, we are going to establish some things and we're going to make some claims that slam the brakes on and say, without these things, the fundamentals, the primary one was the Bible is the Word of God. Um, and they used the term verbal, verbal plenary verbal inspiration.
0: for
2: for well, they thought that all that every word was decided upon by God and the people wrote the exact words God wanted to. You don't have to embrace that. But that's the context in which they established this. They said, this enlightenment, 19th century, higher critical approach to Scripture makes us the judges over Scripture rather than the Scripture revealing to us truth from God that should sit in judgment over us. Now, That's the context. Now, the death of a thousand qualifications. One can easily affirm that God has inspired writers and breathed His truth into the language of human beings through those writers without then falling prey to a wooden and literal sort of biblicism. Because you can affirm inspiration And also affirmed that God not only um, inspired uh, the message that's in the Scripture, but God also inspired the, the creativity of the writers themselves. That they utilized forms, they utilized genres, they utilized ways of approaching the description of and the presentation of this truth. So, I don't know that that's a qualification that causes you to die, a thousand times. I think it's just a, a way of saying, if you believe in inerrancy, you can believe that God is the author of the Scripture in the sense that God is the author of all of the acts that the Scripture attests to, and God is also the inspirer of those who interpreted the implications and the meaning of those yes, acts, yes, yes. Uh, er, uh, that being the prophets, the wisdom literature writers, in the Old Testament and the, uh, the, uh, the apostles who wrote the epistles of the New Testament, that God guided them, God inspired them, God helped them. And that's, once again, that's not dying a death of a thousand qualifications. That's just saying, when we speak about inerrancy, we are talking about the work of God to give to us, to subsequent generations, access to His mighty acts, access to the meaning of His mighty acts, access to the implications of His mighty acts, access to the understanding of our own existence as human beings before God because of what God has done in order to reveal Himself to us. Now, that may not exactly get to your question, but I didn't want to try to address the question in in a vacuum. That we have to understand where it came from, and then what did the Chicago people want to do? They understood that the, that the philosophy of language that was utilized by the Princetonian theologians of the fundamentalist era, it was an, inadequ- it was, it was an inadequate uh, philosophy of language in the sense that it was not robust enough. Right? Because the Bible doesn't just give us a bunch of propositions about God. Right? right? The Bible has promises. The Bible has predictions. The Bible has um, moral instruction. They're not, all, they're not just all propositions. And so this idea that there's a thousand qualifications that makes the doctrine functionally uh, functionally uh, of little value seems to me to deny uh, seems to me to deny that the Scripture is bearing witness to what God has done. And if that's what we're wanting, if that's going to be our starting point, we can only know what God has done. We only have one source of access to what God has done. Yes. And if God didn't make sure that that was carefully uh, passed along to us, then uh, then we're in a, then we're in a world of hurt, yeah. uh, theologically and spiritually.
1: Yeah. Matt, I wonder, uh, I'll come to you in just a second. Um, Matt, I'm wondering, like, when people, we often use this when, when you're out speaking on behalf of seminary, when I am, sometimes people want to say, well, I don't really want to use a term inerrancy. I believe, all. I, I affirm the Chicago yeah. statement, but I don't want to be, look like, uh, they'll even say crazy fundamentals. I don't want to be a six-day creationist. I don't, and so just the fact that you have to clarify. Yeah. Sometimes you, people use that as a cut by, you know, a thousand, death by a thousand cuts.
0: Yeah. So the simple response to that for me is that if I'm going to err on one side, it's going to be on the side of conservatism and standing in the broader streams of how the church and I would argue how the Bible itself and the authors of Scripture as inspired by the Holy Spirit understands the scriptures themselves right. when Jesus says Moses said. Right. So like okay well Jesus was accommodating their understanding of Moses being the author like if even if that's true Jesus erred on the side of so if if there's an ditches on the other side I want to get closer to the di- to this ditch I'd I'd rather err on the side of being called a loony six-day no uh, yep. creationist literal. I'd rather again that's the extreme. That. That's that, yeah. I'm, I have room for six-day creationism, yeah. but let's say I'd rather err on that side right. than on this side because I uh, uh, for for oh, lots of good. for lots of reasons. But um, and and has to do with context in the world that we inhabit right now as educators in theological education we have an epidemic, mm-hmm. and it all begins with the theology of scripture and revelation and epistemology, all these things wrapped up in one another, post-modernity, the secular age, all these things. And I, I believe that as a function of the church, I see seminaries as a function of the church, not as the academy and the ecclesia, but as a part of the ecclesia, the, our job is to get back to having a higher view of the authority of Scripture. Now, I understand that you know going too far on that side, it runs its risk, but I'd rather run that risk than the other risk right, of throwing out all truth right, altogether. Because yeah. I do believe, I very much believe, I feel this notion that the Bible is a transformational document, right, not right. an informational document, right. I think that's a wrong way of thinking about it. And maybe I'm incorrect about this, but like our salvation is, is truth from deception. That's what it is. Uh, Jesus says, I will sanctify you in truth. I've sanctified you by my word. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And so I think that the truth of the matter, and, uh, we talk, and understand epistemology, we're talking about facts, or we're talking about an ascent to knowledge, we're talking about Gnostic way of salvation. That's not what we're talking, and without getting into all those weeds. But I think that the reliability of scripture, that it is reliable right. in pointing to truth, a truthful account um, of who God is, speaking in history and time and space. So The the epistemological
1: or soteriological uh, division is a a false dilemma.
0: Like, we don't. Yeah, I. I, Yes. Yeah. So, like, I think there is a distinction. Oh, sure. They're different things. I I think why would you separate it's either transformation or or informational? Like, uh, our good friend Tom McCall says the doctor's going to prescribe you medicine based on facts. Right. Like, they have to go together. In other your transformation is your healing. And that transfer, like, and we're set free by this fact. God wants our best and loves for us. And and loves us, not what the serpent told us in the garden. That's a fact. And that's what transforms our hearts. Yeah, amen.
1: Murray, you wanted to jump in a second ago. Well,
3: we've just at several points mentioned this objection that inerrancy, uh, opponents of inerrancy claim that it dies the death of a thousand qualifications. And um, my response to that would be to say that the Bible is a complex book. Um, and so let, let's think, for example, about two issues um, very briefly here, the, the differences that we find in the Gospels. I was hoping you'd get to that. I was going to ask you to bring this up, so okay. great. great. And, and also, the, the of course, the issue we've alluded to several times of, of Genesis and how we understand the creation accounts. Well, if you just say, well, the, um, the differences in the Gospels are because the Gospel writers made historical errors, that's not a very historically... Um, accurate explanation. And I think as as Craig Keener and Mike Lacona, who uh, ironically are inerrantists, um, as they have shown they're New Testament scholars, um, they've done very you know, robust, nuanced work on why there are differences in the, in the Gospels. And they've shown that there are, uh, when, we, when we look at other uh, historians and biographers at that time, um, there were these literary ch- techniques that were used and that were accepted and that these explain um, why uh, Uh, Events in the Gospels are often portrayed in slightly different ways, and we can actually learn a a lot about the Gospels when we attend um, to those literary techniques. Um, And if we had just said, you know, well, it's simpler to just say the Gospel writers made historical errors. Well, that's not an accurate, good historically accurate description of what's going on. Um, And in the same way, uh, it seems like you know, we when we. talk about uh, Genesis. Now, this gets much more controversial, I understand, maybe controversy in this group here, but um, critics of inerrancy will, will say, often say things like, well, you know, the Bible says that it's a young earth, you know, it was created in six days, and that's wrong. Like, the Bible just made a mistake. And I would say that, you know, maybe it's more complex than that. Maybe maybe just saying that, that Genesis was wrong, um, it, it is not, uh, maybe that's too simple of an answer. And when we go back and we look at how ancient people read Genesis, uh, like Philo of Alexandria, uh, he insisted that it was intended, uh, that it was clear from the text that this was intended by the author to be read uh, symbolically and not literally, uh, Origin, a Christian theologian, said the same thing. Now I know people are going to disagree with that. There's there's a lot of discussion, but it's it's not as simple. Mm-hmm. I, I, ironically, oftentimes the, the critics of inerrancy end up sounding more like Ken Ham, the young earth creationist guy, and that uh-huh. they just sort of look at this and see, well, this is definitely a a simple historical narrative. When I would want to say, actually, if we're if we're going to take a historically sensitive look at this, we're going to find that it's actually more complex than that. Um, So, you know, yeah, there are a lot of caveats that we uh, supply when we talk about errors in the Bible, but that's because the Bible is a complex book. Yeah, this is helpful.
2: That that touches upon what I was, in my long-winded meanderings, what I was trying to get at. When you affirm the doctrine of inerrancy and the doctrine of the God-breathed inspiration of the Scripture, when I said God not only inspired the writers to write down ideas but he inspired them in the sense that he inspired their creativity to write in a particular way or in a particular form and i've read lacona's work on this very thing this whole uh, biographical telescoping technique Mm -hmm. that ancient biographers in the first and second. Uh, Early, even the early first century B.C. in the first century A.D., second century A.D., utilized to tell to tell accurate accounts, Um, and um, so all of that to say, it does. So when people say, "Oh, well, you have to begin to qualify what you don't mean," well, in what possible world? (laughs) Do you not have to qualify what you don't mean when you make any claim? So for instance, a, um, a theistic evolutionist. and you know, truth in advertising here, I'm more of an intelligent design person. Um, I, am not, I am not a young Earth person. I am not an old Earth person. I'm agnostic. Because I don't think science a is yeah, i okay. I don't think science is nearly time is nearly as able time. to make the sort of claims that it in, it assents, insists upon. Right. Uh, I don't think it I don't think our measurement techniques I don't think any of them are that accurate. But but by, by the same token I don't think the the Book of Genesis is was written creatively. By Moses or redacted by Moses or whatever, put together um, as a as an explanation for the exact process that God used even St Augustine said God created it all at once boom and the whole thing just fell into place and then it started unfolding. but my point is this there's nothing if you're a theistic evolutionist as a Christian. There's flexibility. If was, and you ask somebody, okay, well, what do you mean by that? Well, I don't mean, because I've had multiple conversations. I don't mean this. I don't mean this. I don't mean this. Oh, do you think this? Oh, no, that's not what I mean by that. And so in anything you're going to do, you're going to have to begin to qualify. And so it is just, it's a red herring to say you have to, you have to begin to say what I don't mean from the jump. And so the reason that I chose back in the... Back in the 90s, uh, after I graduated from Asbury Theological Seminary, back in the 90s, I chose, when I was a United Methodist pastor, after reading a bunch of books about biblical authority, I decided I'm going to embrace the term inerrancy. Because when I use that term, I'm making the strongest possible statement I can make about the authority of the revelation that is in the scripture. Now, if somebody said, well, what do you mean by that? I can begin to have a conversation. But terminology is important. And so the people who don't want to be inerrantists, they they develop a different term. But it's a term that when you really push them on it, um, it's, it's, it's a shade different. But they t- talk about the Bible infallible. It's infallible in all that it teaches. Right. Right. Well, okay. So what does it teach? And so this goes back to um, what these two guys were talking about. You know, what does the Bible teach? Now that's a that's a hermeneutical question right there. Right. So, what kind of literature is this? How does it fit into the context of the ancient world in which it was written? Because the documents that we're dealing with are ancient documents. They weren't written to be newspaper articles, right? Or or to be modern-day uh, travel logs. And so um, we have to we just have to say, what does the Bible teach?
0: Nor sheer entertainment. Yeah. Like transformational. Like right. you're gonna watch this and it's gonna be. It's going to impact you. It's right. going to transform you. True or not, doesn't matter. It's a powerful story. Right. It's just, just until we get back into right. let post-liberalism. Me, let me jump
2: in about that because I thought I'm sorry, I, I had all these thoughts rattling around in my old so brain. Right. I, yeah. But um, the idea of the Bible can be transformational, and we should read it for soteriological purposes. Why?
3: Mm. <laughs>
2: yeah. Why? Why <laughs> it, 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 it? and right. not the Upanishads? That's right. Why it and not the Quran? Why? Yeah, it's very and so the distinction between information and transformation, as you put it, Andy, is a, it's a false dichotomy. Yeah. We, choose, we, we choose to believe that the Bible can be read for salvific purposes because of the information that's there. Mm-hmm. And so once again, we get back to hermeneutics in, in the. And by the way, the Chicago statement. Most people don't know this. I've read. I've read all of it, but it also has the Bi- Chicago Statement on Biblical Hermeneutics, as well as the Chicago Statement on Inerrancy, and it goes in great to great length to talk about all the various genres and how you have to approach them differently, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And so the idea that is transformational and not informational, uh, once again, is just. It's just a false dichotomy. Okay. Can I ask uh, Murray something?
0: Yeah. Sorry. Okay, yeah. I was going for Murray too, so that's good. Well, well this I, Chicago, we're talking about Chicago Statement, and but the Chicago Statement is just a contemporary, recent. Oh, that's right. Exactly. It doesn't what I was reach, do you know. It's, <laughs> yeah. it's, a, it's a more. Why are we putting so much? We've stock? created this in the twentieth century. Right. right. Like so before anyone, the claim,
3: and people who weren't alive when the Chicago Statement was written, I just want
1: to
0: can't be an anarchoists. Yes. Right. Yes. Right.
3: Well, yeah, the so was that inerrancy was invented by modern fundamentalists. Right, right. and yeah. so, like, how I mean, could you say that Jesus was inerrancy? Or John Wesley. Or John Wesley or, yeah,
0: yeah. Yeah. Can you speak to that?
3: <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, I mean, it, it, I think that um, the uh, there are hints of it earlier, but the very clearest, uh, most robust articulation of inerrancy uh, goes all the way back to the uh, late 4th, early 5th century with Augustine. Uh, he had a, this interesting dispute with Jerome over the interpretation of the passage in Galatians where... Uh, Paul says that he confronted Peter. And uh, that, that passage created to his, face. to his face. Yeah, and that passage created a problem for the early church because the view of these two you know, great pillars of the church fighting with each other was embarrassing, right? So, so Jerome said, well, maybe maybe Peter and Paul actually agree with each other, but uh, for the sake of the weak Jewish Christians, um, Peter just pulled back for a little bit from the Gentiles just to help their faith. Um, and uh, Peter uh, and Paul knew this, and so he just sort of pretended to rebuke Peter in front of everybody for their benefit. Um, and um, you know, note here that, that um, the error that Jerome is suggesting in the text is not an error in his theology, Right, um, it's just he's saying that his histor- uh, Jerome is suggesting that Paul's historical narration isn't exactly straightforward, and Augustine said, no, 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 we cannot say that because everything that the Bible teaches is true. And Augustine ha- has a couple of important qualifications there. He's, he says, you know, now if I see something in the text that seems to me not to be true, then I conclude either the, the translation I have is an error, or the manuscript that the translator used was faulty, or that I've failed to understand. So we see those important qualifications. This, uh, the claim of inerrancy uh, understands that this is about the original text, which we don't uh, in all cases necessarily know for certain. Uh, and then you know, there's a discipline of text criticism. Um, and then also that it involves interpretation. So maybe our interpretation of the text is wrong. Um, but, uh, so yeah, that's very clearly stated by Augustine and then Wesley. Um, he, uh, uh, there was a bishop who made the case, it's very similar I think to what a lot of people today make where um, the, this bishop said, well, scripture is an infallible guide for us in the Christian faith, right? And so, because that's its purpose, it, inspiration, divine inspiration, only ensures that there's no considerable error. In other words, no significant error, but that there might be trivial errors. It's, it's okay if there are trivial errors. And again, Wesley, when he heard that, he said, no, no, no. He said, he said if, if there's any error at all, then that shakes the authority of the whole. Um, So I think that the uh, Chicago Statement is just articulating what has been the traditional view. And I would, if I could, jump back real quick to something that you said, Steve, about the whole evolution thing. I think people should know that uh, J.I. Packer, who is one of the theologians who helped to frame, helped to write the Chicago Statement, um, while he was skeptical about some of the uh, claims of evolution, he said um, that he didn't think there was anything in Genesis 1 and 2 that... um, uh, was incompatible with the theory of evolution, and notice that's not just the the age of the Earth. The theory of evolution is, uh, includes a the theory of common descent, right? Um, so uh, now, whether or not you agree with that, that's that's some people will debate. But you should know that you know one of the people who wrote the Chicago Statement was per, said that uh,
0: you know there was nothing uh, wrong
3: with embracing fully the, the theory of evolution.
0: So just a quick response. I would I agree everything you said. I'd go back even further than Augustine. I'd say the Bible itself says plainly that it's perfect, Psalm 19, for example. Now I know that interpretation perfectly and everything that teaches regarding salvation, let's say that's, but what I'm getting at is that just because a sophisticated articulation of a particular doctrine came about later in history didn't mean that the notion of what that articulated didn't exist prior to its articulation. So let's say that, yeah, we know about quantum physics now, but people who didn't live before the theory of quantum physics weren't subject to its principles at work, wow. right? Um, and so that's more of yeah, what I'm... It's, it's, t- it's
3: important to understand that when Augustine said that, he didn't say, you know, hey, Jerome, I've got this new understanding of Scripture. Right. I right. want to try it out on you, see what you think. He's right. like, well, you know this. You know that the Scripture can't be right. And Jerome apparently, from Augustine's later letter, changed his mind on this after Augustine's review. Well, so,
0: the, the, the Trinity, I mean... Just because we didn't have an articulation of right. the language that we have now, doesn't mean the Trinity didn't exist prior to the, the Council of, mm-hmm. now again, I don't mean to suggest that the doctrine of inerrancy is on the same level, because right, right. it's you know, essentials and non-essentials and dogma and all those things as the doctrine of the Trinity. I'm, I'm not suggesting that, but I'm, what I'm talking about is the idea of reading back into history a doctrine that's modern. Well, that, then we might as well say the Trinity didn't exist prior to its articulation. Well, the, um, Am I
2: wrong? Am I missing some? Some is my logic okay there? The um, I like I I really appreciated Murray's um, uh, description of of all of that. Um, You know, one of the things, or two other things, the people who talk about the transformative versus the informational, they always accuse inerrantists of privileging epistemology Mm -hmm. over ontology. And that's a big way of saying you're privileging a theory of how do you know anything over the theory of what there is to be known. And what is there to be known? God. Mm-hmm. Okay. I I think that that's exactly backwards. Inerrantists privilege ontology. I agree. We say, yeah, yeah. these things happened.
0: And we can't explain them. Yeah. These things happened and
2: they happened in the way that they are described, which doesn't mean that the first eleven chapters of Genesis are uh, a blow-by-blow blow account of anything, right?
1: And that drives the inerrantists to work harder in their interpretation.
2: So, but but my point is this: is that is that it's not privileging a, a theory of knowledge. It's just it's saying, what well, we've all said it in different ways, that the mighty acts of God to make Himself known in His creation and through Israel and in Jesus. And then through the church, the early church, those mighty acts, including the instruction through those who Jesus Himself appointed to be the instructors, right? Those things matter. And also, when they talk about when they, if if you deny the the foundational thing about uh, these mighty acts, that these and this these ideas and the description of what's happened. Is historically accurate in in uh, in sig- in significant detail. I'm not saying that there's not telescoping. <laughs> I'm not saying that there's that like for instance, the writer of uh, Chronicles and the writer of First and Second Kings. They don't have two different audiences they're trying to address and trying to make two different points from the same historical details. Yeah. Right. Okay. So. I'm not. I'm not saying that. But the, historically, what's happening is is the foundation. Otherwise, you end up with what what I've I, in an article I wrote several years ago. You end up with a logo centric view of spirituality that is word centric. As, as though the Bible's functioning in, functioning in some magical sense, versus a logos centric, the eternal word has made the eternal God in the finite world known and um, that's why that's why I just I didn't have all of these categories when I decided to embrace the doctrine of inerrancy but in the years since then I've come to realize that this robust embrace of it is an absolute necessity
1: I'm going to jump in here. I want to make sure we have time to get one other point addressed, and that's why does this matter to Wesleyans? And so I want to just give my story as an example of that. I think kind of like an introductory type of Christian <clears throat> theology class, maybe undergraduate level or an intro theology class in seminary, uh, people are often uh, confronted with a dilemma that's false again. And I, I was just in the same position where people said, well, evangelicals believe in infallibility and then fundamentalists believe in inerrancy. And basically the implication is you don't want to be a fundamentalist, do you? And you don't want to assume that you can put all these pieces together and somehow that all these discrepancies or challenges, so you don't want to be one of those type of people. So I didn't want to have to enter in this conversation for a decade after leaving seminary. I didn't use the term, and I didn't go to Wesley Biblical Seminary. I didn't use the term inerrancy because I thought, well, I don't want to confuse people. And after all, this is all the things we've kind of already addressed, and I didn't see it as significant. But then, like, as I grew, I began to see what's happening when people reject inerrancy. Often it was leading them to another direction of rejecting the authority of Scripture in general. Now, that's not a reason to do it. But then, as Matt said earlier, I would rather people land on the conservative side if it's going to be one or the other. Nevertheless, what happened for me was just kind of understanding in general that God speaks truthfully and he's utterly reliable in how he speaks and communicates to the world, and so this thing kind of just led me back on this journey, and I think the challenge, like what's happening in the United Methodist Church right now is with the emergence of the global Methodist Church, one of the things that has come about is that there's people who have an entirely different Christology. There's people who deny the resurrection. There's people who certainly deny inerrancy. I'm wondering from you guys, why do you think it's important at this point, point? and not that we say you have to be, but why might inerrancy, be helpful. And Matt, I want you to go with this first. Sure. Why might inerrancy be important in this next Methodist moment?
0: Well, I could get I could be getting this wrong. Forgive me and correct me if someone here knows if I'm wrong. But if I understand right, uh, the basis for um, violating the book of discipline has been the theological purpose statement That's right. That's in the right. book yeah. of discipline. One. And, and the Wesleyan quadrilateral and saying that reason is, is and experience are factors in the interpretive process of arriving at theological conclusions. Well, and I think that the door stays wide open to do whatever you want with Scripture if you err on that side. Um, and so I think you have to pull it back, and I think you have to say inerrancy. I mean, I think that's how you prevent this from happening again. That
1: Paul was not wrong in, in Romans 1 when he spoke about human sexuality. Correct. That, that the scripture was not. This isn't because like, our
0: overall purpose. Right. Well, what happens when your purpose is in contradiction to what the scripture seems to plainly be teaching? But, but yeah. I mean, yeah. if you suggest some of it's not divine revelation. Right, like, right. In, well, uh, and, and the other thing I'd, I'd add to that, I don't know. I think it answers the question, but more broadly, is that I, when I read the text, Old and New Testament, um, I want to read the text the way the text understands itself, the way the New Testament authors understand and interpret the Old Testament. And to me, this position that we're discussing of inerrancy is much closer to how the writers of the New Testament were reading the Old Testament and how Jesus himself is understanding the Old Testament. Um, (laughs) I will give you the sign of Jonah. As Moses said, the word of God shall not pass away. I've come to fulfill the law. Every jot and tittle. I mean, to me, yeah, to me, that's more in line with the Spirit of how the text is lending itself to be understood and read. Mm -hmm. And so, but to more specifically answer the question, the theological purpose statement is the grounds on which people have violated the book of discipline and kind of uh, uh, interpreted scripture uh, in a way that I think is inappropriate.
1: Murray, I don't know if you addressed this, um, but one of the claims that comes from in some quarters is that using inerrancy is a Wesleyans becoming Calvinist. I've never actually followed that line. I don't know that's something you've come in contact with. I don't see anything that's necessarily Calvinistic. are we supposed to be but... the ecumenical
0: ones? I don't under... Anyway.
3: Yeah, well, again, as I said before, I think that Wesley clearly affirmed, explicitly affirmed, yeah. there was no error in Scripture. So I don't think that Wesleyans need to feel that they are somehow abandoning their Wesleyan principles. It's rather an odd thing, right, to accuse someone of being un-Wesleyan <laughs> by believing what Wesley said, right? Um, so I don't think, you know, we need to, to feel bad about that. Um, I would like to just piggyback a yeah. bit on, on what you said about Romans 1 um, and Paul's statement on human sexuality, because uh, I think a lot of folks, they they want to affirm the authority of Scripture, um, but they also don't want to get into uh, problems between science and Scripture, or history and Scripture, and so they they think that they can you know just affirm that the Bible is true and its theological and ethical teachings. Yeah but not necessarily insist that it's true in its historical and scientific teachings. And I think the passage from Romans um, is a good illustration of how that kind of falls apart. Because, um, you know, clearly it's an ethical teaching, right? That homosexuality is wrong. But then people can say, well, you know, if it's possible that, that the Bible is teaching error in matters of science and history, you can say, well, Paul uh, came to this ethical yeah. position because of his scientific errors. He mm, he he thought he he didn't realize that uh, homosexuality is a natural condition. And if he had realized that, then maybe he wouldn't have taught that ethical teaching. And so you really can't. And it 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 sounds nice in principle, but in practice, I don't think you can separate the um, the uh, the theological and ethical truth from the historical scientific truth. Now that of course that's not to again as as we all know, the Bible is not a scientific textbook, but The Bible does make claims that have bearing on science, and I think it's, again, important to affirm that everything the Bible teaches is true, uh, whether that is purely theology and ethics or whether that's also touching up against science and history.
1: This is perfect. This is great. Uh, As we're thinking, Steve, I'll let you give a little maybe concluding remark here about why this matters to Wesleyans going forward.
2: Well, I think it matters to Wesleyans going forward for the most part for the reason that it matters for every person who wants to follow Jesus. Okay. And be like Jesus. Yeah. I like that. For instance,
1: yeah, forgive me if that, if I sound like I'm a tribal by no, saying no. that. You I think yeah, yeah. Tribal at
2: all. I'm just saying that we have a stake in this big game. Yes, amen. Yeah. And Wesleyans have a stake to be a witness in this big game, which is the game of the kingdom of God being manifest in the world through the church. Because Coming out of the Enlightenment, what people don't recognize is coming out of the Enlightenment and throughout the 18th, the 19th century and throughout most of the 20th century. It wasn't that science was the enemy of faith. Scientism was the enemy of faith. That is, the belief that the only truth that we can claim to know, affirm, and, and embrace is that which science tells us is factually true. That's scientism. By the way, that very claim that the only things that are true are those things which can be proven by the scientific method, that cannot be proven by the scientific method. It's a self-referentially refuting claim. Now, why why do I say that? Because now in the 21st century, Once you go out of scientism, and then you get into postmodernism with the suspicion that human language at all can give us any access to truth because all human language is about power dynamics and power relationships. Okay, you put those two things together. Well, moral, theological, philosophical, and spiritual ideas Don't count, scientism, postmodernism, moral, scientific, political, philosophical, spiritual, and theological ideas are nothing more than than the work, than the effort of the dominant group to exert their control over marginalized groups. Okay, that's the context in which we live today. And so all of this embrace of, this embrace of, what is pseudoscience with regard to human sexuality or transgenderism? Um, there's no scientific basis for transgenderism. There's no philosophical basis for transgenderism. There's only a particular school of thought psychologically of, for transgender, and that is a, a school of that's a school of the social sciences, right? So why does inerrancy matter? Because Christians need to be able to say, Thus saith the Lord. And because the Lord says it, I will believe it, because it's demonstrable that this book has stood the test of time, and the teachings of this book are grounded in reality, and therefore I want my life grounded on reality, and I'm going to stand with all of the other faithful witnesses who stood on the foundation of the rock of Jesus Christ. And they knew Jesus Christ because of the witness of Scripture. That's why it matters.
1: Amen. Thank you, Steve. I think that's a good conclusion. Well, thanks so much for coming along everybody here. And look, we we could talk about this much longer. I think we all have several ideas. (laughs) And um, if you're interested in further exploring these subjects, you could audit Our biblical theology class you could come in and become a student at wesley biblical seminary we'd love to have you as we are thinking through these topics as steve was just leading us to the transgender issue for our time i know steve and murray have both taught history of christian thought where we walk through some of these ideas as well matt's teaching psalms this this semester so thinking about literary context and all these type of things we'd love for you to think about coming and joining us at Wesley biblical Seminary, you can find us at wbs.edu thanks guys for coming along for this discussion